All right, ladies and gentlemen, thanks for joining us here again for the podcast, episode 46. Tonight's awesome, special, wonderful guest is Grover Brown, who joins us from the University of Southern Mississippi, where he is a PhD student. He is uh, in the process of starting to collect data for his thesis project, and he's got a few other steps to go, but we're really excited to have Grover on with us. He's a real bright, exciting young fellow for conservation, and we're um we're really excited to hear some great stories from Grover. Um, so Grover, thanks for joining us. And uh, for all our viewers, we've got Anthony and Kevin again, as usual. Hey guys. Hey. Hey, and yeah, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's definitely our pleasure. We're super excited. Um, Grover is, you're seeing, uh, ladies and gentlemen, if, if you're not familiar with Grover, you certainly ought to be. And you're seeing someone who, if you're into turtles and tortoises, um, what's going on, who the movers and shakers are. We're bringing you someone who is going to be doing really big things for a long time. And I know that's true because of your enthusiasm. Your enthusiasm is so obvious and it's really exciting just, just to be able to observe it even from afar. Social media is pretty cool for that. And um, yeah, it's just Definitely. an honor to know you, man. Yeah, wow, so much. <laughs> yeah, I'm just saying, you're going to get a lot of compliments and we're also probably going to make fun of you a little bit. But Okay, that's fine. I'll be really awkward with compliments. I'll be really awkward when you make fun of me too. So Awesome. <laughs> that's how we roll on the podcast. That's how I assure you I'll be the brunt of the uh, making fun of tonight. So Speaking you're of which, it's very hot up north. That's why Kevin has is sporting the – that is so bad. It's braided. I'm braiding it tonight. <laughs> oh, bad. Oh, my God. We're going to need more wax. I'm Irish. Oh, my. I, that's, where, that's where Bigfoot's from? Yeah. Ireland? Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. I had no clue. That's amazing. Yeah, we're all from there. All us big feet, you know? Man, you make me feel good about the hair moving from my head to my shoulders as well. That's okay. I'm just saying. Uh, but it is very hot. It's like, it's, yeah. it's like, it, so, so Grover, you're in Mississippi? Yeah. Dumb, the dumb question of the day. So what, what was the high temperature today in Mississippi? Day, oh, thank God. It was only in the low 90s today. The low it's, 90s. Yeah, we had some we had some um, storms roll through, so it cooled things off. So it was warmer today in Connecticut, where where Kevin and I are, than, than in Mississippi. My high today was eighty six, but yesterday oh, was ninety five. Oh, that's right. Yeah, but you're on the shoreline. That's yeah, right. Yeah, coastline. That's right. Okay. Okay. Well, we don't need to start off. Guys are lucky. You all are lucky. It is still ninety five here, and it's after seven. Oh, that's pretty impressive. I was gonna say. No one cares, but that is actually really. <laughs> well, the only reason I didn't want to get into a whole thing talking about weather, like, hey guys, let's get together and just talk about weather. <clears throat> I think it was like 98 here that earlier with a heat index of over 105. Nice, yeah. toasty July 2nd in uh, Lancaster so, County, Pennsylvania. So, what I'm hearing is that you are all honorary Mississippians this week. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Humid okay. too. Huh. Although, yeah, we're we're used to the humidity here though, with all the streams and everything. But the upper 90s is not my friend. So what's it like in December in Mississippi, though? I've never been. Believe it or not, we got eight inches of snow last December. Wow. Like in, one day, in one day. It was it was absurd. It blew my mind. So uh, you can imagine the terror. Yeah. Yeah. Driving around. People on the coast were freaking uh, out. Mass collisions everywhere. It was like, oh, yeah. It was like the, you can imagine the good old boys and the big old trucks. They're, they're um. They're, they're bro dozers, if you will. Them trying to get around—it was just—it was 
it was bad. But we did get snow. It's a very rare occasion. December in Mississippi, though, I can usually still catch turtles. In fact, I got my last box turtle in early December this year. Okay. Yep. Now, how many species of box turtle are in uh, Mississippi? Oh, well, it depends on the taxon- taxonomist you ask. So we have... But, uh, so include subspecies, so the answer isn't variable. Okay, okay. So I believe we have three subspecies. So we have three-toed, which is our most widely distributed. Mm-hmm. Um, we also have Easterns. Uh, in theory, and in the guise, they're only in extreme northeastern Mississippi. However, uh, you see their influence as far south as where, uh, as far south as Hatchburg, we're like an hour north of the coast. Mm-hmm. And I've seen textbook eastern box drills here. I don't think they're transplants. But what's really cool is that once you get to the coastal counties, you have the Gulf Coast box turtles, which are just these semi-aquatic mammoth box turtles that it's incredible to see the transition go from trying U.S. three toads to, to major just like that. And they kind of follow the river floodplains up, so you can actually get them um, actually not far from Hattiesburg where I am now. But they are, they are cool. Yeah. Now, there's different localities with the – like the Gulf Coast, right? There's like a panhandle that has like the whiter face you see. So we don't have the white face ones. I've heard of reports of some speckling of white on the face, and I'd really like to see that. But most of ours are really big um, and brown. They kind of have a, a lighter like, brown carapace. The tan, yeah. Um, but yeah, they're generally just a really dark turtle, though. Um, okay. Except when they're young. But they're really cool. I enjoy yeah. seeing that. Much larger. Oh, huge. Huge. Blew my mind the first time I saw one. That's really cool. Yeah. I don't think I'll ever see him in the wild, only at Chris's house. So, Grover, where did you grow up? So, I am actually from northwest Georgia, um, small town. Cartersville is near Rome, Georgia, but it's a really cool place. Uh, distance makes the heart grow fonder. You know, like, as I was growing up, I didn't realize how lucky I was with the diversity of uh, wildlife that we have there, particularly turtles. So, I really enjoy going home now because it's it's, it's just fun to go out and catch those childhood turtles, chase map turtles, chase. Um, those Northwest Georgia mountains are beautiful. Oh, they're gorgeous. And then, you know, we're only a stone's throw from some bog turtle populations too, yeah. which is crazy, you know? So we, yeah. we kind of get it all on the spot. Have you, uh, have you seen bog turtles in the wild? I have. I worked for the Georgia Department of Natural Resources for like two summers officially and one summer unofficially. Uh, and it was part of a marker capture of Georgia bog turtles. Awesome. And part of my, my friend's uh, thesis at, at Clemson, she was identifying uh, potential suitable um, wetland habitats using GIS data. And she actually managed to find new populations, which was awesome. So I got to cool. trap some. What is, uh, what's GIS data? I, I don't know myself. So GIS, else uh, it's, it's basically, um, of course, you're asking me to... <laughs> I don't know if I can give you, I think it's geospatial information system or geographic information systems. Okay. And basically it's, um, it's map data. So yeah. a lot more goes into a map than you think. And so it's got all kinds of layers, if you will, to it. So you've got, you know, things like soil layers, you've got things, uh, uh, urban developers use it. Um, and it's just a really great mapping software, but you can do cool stuff in biology with it as well. It has a lot of really useful applications. For instance, my friends study um, identifying potential bacterial sites by looking at things like soil um, composition and hydro- hydrological layer, or looking at different streams and wetland layers. 
Yeah, that's crazy. Never thought but, to think about that. You take, it's kind of like you take all the old, um, like the old mapping skills we, that we you used to think about. Like people used to like make the maps. That was like people's job was to make maps. And so with GIS, you take you take all that kind of map making ability, charting streams and soil types and mountains. But then with our t technology today, you can add the GPS and the and the satellite imagery to it. And oh, so yeah. you build this complete like layered picture of an area from its soil composition to its altitude, to its water type, to its habitat type. And then you can pinpoint it with a GPS coordinate so you can actually make sure you get where you want to go. That's awesome. Now, are these, are these you know, maps available to public or is this like you have to be a part so of it, a... It's software. So essentially okay. you're making it yourself. You're assimilating these data and okay. to answer specific questions. <laughs> and so the, these data, some of them are um, publicly available, but a lot of them is through federal agencies and stuff like that. Sometimes yeah. it's see, especially the software. Right. Okay. Yeah. The software is expensive, really expensive. And then you're tying into lots of different databases to pool the data for the layers you want. Yeah. And so even when you go to pick like a hydrological layer, you could pick a, a layer from several different sources, depending on which region of the world you want to, you want to chart. Okay. Awesome. And so it's, it's really, really complex. Um, Kevin, Anthony, do the book for An that Anthony has that he wrote uh -huh. oh, um, when Anthony, I made wait, the maps, wrote a book? Well, yeah, he did. When I made the maps for his book, I used some GIS software to help with those too. Gotcha. Awesome. I don't even have a copy of it down here. I was going to grab a copy. <laughs> wait, wait, <laughs> to get back to wait, what's this book about? Cause you're, you're really prevalent with like truck Emmys, right? That's what you're doing these days. <laughs> Me? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sliders, only red ears. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. I do more with sliders than anything else. Yeah. Makes sense. Hello. I have a slider. Would you like to help me? Yes. Question mark. I would. Just saying. <laughs> Lots of slider stuff going on. Oh. Grover, you probably do a lot of work with sliders, right? I, catch a lot of, I, I do catch a lot of sliders. So. And, and so, Grover, tell everybody, are red ear sliders native to your study area? Oh, that's another loaded question. Um, yes, by current distribution maps, they are. However, uh, they are very interesting because they, they don't have the bright red ear that you would think that they would have down here in the deep south. Um, instead, ours actually could pass for Cumberland sliders, and they get misidentified as that often because they actually have a really thin, uh, almost I've seen completely yellow ears on them. Uh, and it starts off yellow and then fades to kind of an orange and then red towards the back. But the lines are really thin. So the, I guess the textbook redder slides that we think of are like the Louisiana variety. But at least here in southeast Mississippi, uh, it's a mixed bag. And we've actually – I've seen yellow belly influence here before. But I, I don't think it's introduced. I think it's natural variation. But I've seen the uh, large post-orbital blotch on some individuals here in really remote areas. So it's just – it's. It's a mixed bag. So yes, they're native, but I think it probably is a zone of integration at, at some at some point. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, a lot of the photos that I see you of you catching are mud and musk turtles. Is that yep. uh, is that like a big passion project for you, or just what you're finding most often? So it, well, 
it's uh, definitely a passion project for me. I've always been I've always been really in love with the kind of sternids. Um, two is also the focus of my dissertation work. Mm -hmm. So that is what I'm targeting. So I, I, I do post a lot of mud and musk turtles because I find them really endearing. Um, they got that big head and those little arms and they're just really cute. And uh, I mean, you know, I, I catch them for my dissertation work, but when I'm not working or trapping, I still go out on the weekends and try to catch mud and musk turtles just because my favorite thing to do. Yeah. Oh, there's me. This is something I wanted to do. I, I threw a couple of um, very poor quality photos uh, Steve's way so that we can just put some up here on the board and talk about what we're seeing in the, in the photo. Um, I want to make fun of your uh, geeky smile in most of these. That's not that bad. That, that, that's a nice smile. That's, that's a prom smile. That's not bad. But, you know, talking about the animals, where you are, and then also just, you know, make fun of you a little bit. That's okay. Well, this is a good, actually, so this is an interesting photo. Um, so this photo was actually taken in extreme southwestern Alabama. And those are razorback musk turtles. I thought so they looked like razorbacks. They are razorbacks. And so the state of Alabama, up until maybe a year or two ago, there were only two recorded instances or two museum specimens of razorback musk turtles uh, that had ever been found there. And the last one that was found there was about 14 years ago. So I wrote together a proposal for a small grant just to see uh, kind of what the distribution and abundance of the Razorback Mustard looked like in Alabama since there were only two known records. And I think I went out before I even started trapping officially just for fun, and I hand-caught, I think it was five or six. And so that tripled the number that had been found or recorded um, ever. So that was really exciting. And then as soon as I got traps in the water, I was catching these things left and right. So wow. they're really very abundant. Uh, it's just a part of the state that really no one's ever worked in before. And, you know, Alabama, uh, even with the description of this new species, has every Sternothrus in existence, if you think about it. So the Razorback is peripheral, but it is present in the state. They have uh, the endemic flat musk turtle, of course, and now this new intermediate, um, the intermediate musk turtle. So I'm extremely jealous of Alabamans for that reason. <laughs> right? But, so many turtles in Alabama. So many. Uh, especially down at the Delta area. It's Al Alabama has the greatest turtle diversity in the United States and the mobile uh, Is it 33? The yeah, something uh, it's not it's close. It's the, the state anywhere, anywhere from twenty-eight to thirty-three, depending on who you talk to, yeah. between taxonomy and range makers, what's native, what's not, you know, all that other jazz. Um, but the mobile bay area itself it has the highest turtle diversity of any one hydrologic area in the world, which is really cool. Isn't that where Forrest Gump's from? He was from one of the fictitious town in South Alabama. I thought it was Mobile, Alabama or something like Greenbow. that. Greenbow. Greenbow. It was Greenbow. That's what it was. Is that fictitious? That sounds very real. I think I've looked it up. And I, I don't think I could find Greenbow, Alabama. I could be mistaken, though. <laughs> Oh my gosh! So Grover, there's a we can't tell what this picture is, what this turtle is. So I thought maybe you can tell us what you're holding in this picture. Hold on, he's got. He also has some Braveheart. Yeah, I got I got some mud on the face. Um, yeah. that's that predator actually, action. War paint. A, a road trip with one of my best friends, uh, Todd Pearson. Who, if you know, if you like salamanders, you know Todd Pearson because you probably used his photo in the presentation before. He's a phenomenal photographer. But we took a trip out west to try to see how many rattlesnake species we could find. And I think we ended up finding nine different rattlesnake species. 
And one day we were driving along though, and I mean, I, I think snakes are awesome. I think they're really cool. Um, but I really but like- But there are no turtles. Yeah, and turtle diversity as you kind of go out west really tanks. And so I was getting really kind of desperate. And, you know, uh, we come across a few homemade uh, box turtles, which is awesome. I got my life for yellow mud in Kansas. And then we were just driving down this rinky-dink road, this gravel road somewhere in Arizona. And, you know, as turtle people, we have this search image in our head all the time. And I saw this rock on the side of the road. I was like, that looked a lot like a turtle. Um, so I slammed on the brakes and we backed up and it was a Sonoran mud turtle just on the side of the road. Awesome. Really small um, stream. <clears throat> Excuse me, stream. And uh, I flipped out because I just thought I was, it was the last, you know, we were in the middle of the desert. You know, and it, this is the last place I expect to see a turtle as a mud turtle. So, of course, I've got the mud on my face. So I was a muddy person next to a muddy turtle. And uh, that was my life for snoring mud turtle. And, man, they are so cool. I love going out west and seeing those. That's so, awesome. That's that photo in a nutshell. It was an awesome trip. Hey, you're wearing the same shirt now that you had in that photo. Oh, it's similar. similar. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Just kidding. That's that's a really cool story. That's that's awesome. Thanks. So I'm starting to realize that you only put really cool, impressive photos with a good story. Oh well, I, I, maybe I guess they have some symbolism to me. But what if he only has great experiences, Anthony? Yeah, I've had so many good experiences. Yeah, that's a good point. I didn't think <laughs> about. The same. Do do. Stop moving around your microphone, man. Sorry. Sounds like you're strangling a coat rack. It's a cheap <laughs> Samsung headphone, you know. It's horrible. Oh, all right. I got this one idea. looks. This one looks staged. This, this is you in front of a green screen. Ah, I never thought about that. It does kind of look staged, doesn't it? I think it's just taken with a really nice camera. <laughs> But again, so, uh, this is from the North Georgia mountains. So I, I already told you I worked for Georgia Department of Natural Resources for a couple summers. And um, get this. You look baby-faced in this picture, by the way. Yeah. What's that? You look baby-faced in this picture, by the way. Uh, that was a few years ago. <laughs> Just a few years ago. But uh, they had a, I was a, a technician with the state, and they had a position where you worked with uh, hellbenders, which you know the largest salamander in North America and bog turtles um, for the summer months. So it was awesome. I've caught several hundred hellbenders um, wow. and they're, they're doing reasonably well in North uh, East Georgia. So we have uh, the uh, Chattahoochee National Forest there. It's pretty intact. And we have some gr uh, great rivers and streams up there. Uh, trout fishing's uh, really popular. So I think they help maintain uh, environment, so I think a lot of money goes into preserving some of these areas, and trout streams make really good hellbender streams. So we caught many, many, many hellbenders up there. And that's just one of them. It's really cool. And, um, we did get some strange looks because um, we we're in a wetsuit, and you can't tell by the background, but the water's really only like ankle or knee deep. So we would have all of our gear, and we'd be in a full-on wetsuit. And we were walking ankle deep water past like campsites, and people just kind of look at us like, "Where are you going?" <laughs> little, little did they know you're going to get your entire body under that water to get one of those helmets. 
cold. Dude, it is so cold. I do not retain body heat well. And apparently, I was issued a women's extra large swimsuit. <laughs> I'm, I'm not quite busty enough to fill it. And so I got a lot of water down the front of it. And it, was, it just popped out. <laughs> That's the best thing I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> Grover, so you're going to need a boob job before you put on that right. wetsuit again. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Steve getting risque tonight. I love, <laughs> love it. I love it. I didn't have to go there. Terrific. I'm sleeping alone. His, his brain's, his brain's cooking it. Grover, you should come. It's funny when I when I went down with um, Nafturg to do the to to sample the springs. Everybody had wetsuits. They can say it's really cold, and I know it's warm outside, but you know the springs stay the same temperature all year, and it's really cold in there. Like, and I was the only one without a wetsuit because I'm huge, and like, what wetsuit am I gonna get? I have to get like a, like some, a tailor to make me one, um, just for like one trip down out into the springs. But the water's like one vanity costume. No, yeah, right. You should come up to the northeast where we go oh, man. streams and and see how you like it there. Um, yeah, water in the stream last November when we did our last wood turtle survey, um, we had water temps that were in the 30s. And we just walk it with like hiking boots and shorts. That Not hurt. that time. Chest waders for weather for water like that. Nobody wore any boots or anything. Why would you? Why would you live in a place that gets that cold? It's horrible. It's the worst. It's the worst. Family mostly. I guess the turtles are cool. I would. I would live there for wood turtles for sure. But oh yeah, we do wood have turtles, turtles. Spotted turtles. Steve, I just emailed yeah, you something. There's spotted turtles in warm places. What was that, Kevin? I just emailed you something to put on the screen. Okay. Kevin, quiet that wire. All right. Or I'm or I'm gonna come over and quiet it for you. It's done. It's gone. You going without it? You going without it? Man, I mean, I, with all uh, this I'll just speak louder. Yeah, speak louder. I took an interview course the other day, and I turns out I suck at interviews. So, really? Yeah, I filmed myself, and I sound like an idiot. That's because you knew the camera was on. That's what happens. Perhaps we'll see. I'm gonna remember the time that we tried to do the World Turtle News, and I was on the camera, and I could not speak. Yeah, it was. It was wonderful. That was the worst. It took us like three hours to film like a two-minute video. I cut out 46 ums. <laughs> no, way more than that. I was being generous. I was being, you know, modest. Yeah, way more than that. 460 ums, maybe. What are you drinking there? Is that Coca-Cola or? This is a uh, homemade sangria I made. You're an alcoholic. So this is the probably fifth time I've drinking since Veda was born. Last I time, don't believe you. Seriously, last time was at um, Chris's. <clears throat> ladies and gentlemen, ladies. And, so it's. Just, I never see him, but but yeah. but uh, it's it's really coincidental that every time he's he's had a drink has been when I've been with him. There <laughs> I am. There <laughs> I am. That's me with the manatee <laughs> with my manatee family. But uh, Kevin, this is an intervention. You thought this was going to be a podcast episode. We had Grover on just so that we could have intervention about your sangria drinking. <laughs> I actually have I have many uh, Grovers around my house stationed, actually. Yeah, could we talk about that? Because this is funny. My wife called Kevin Minto Grover for like the first six months that I knew him because he has a Grover pin on his hat. He wears like a like a Kango hat, like real cool. He looks like LL Cool J when he has when he has the shoulder hair covered up. It's, yeah. it's more impressive. But he's got the Grover pin, so my wife would say like, Grover, "Who's that? Who like are you talking Sesame about, Grover? Street Grover?" Well, I would yeah. be like texting Kevin Minto. 
Yeah, and it's Gro Grover from Sesame Street, right? And you say, yeah. you know, who is that, Grover? So I wanted to talk about that. I'm happy you brought it up. But, no, my, uh, my best friend's last name was Grover, so. Okay. It's a good name. Yeah, I like it. My wife says that the name Grover Brown is like the name of, it. my wife's very funny, by the way. I like her, who I married her. But um, her, she she keeps asking if like Grover Brown is somebody that she hears on like smooth jazz brunch on Sunday morning on the radio. Like, another sultry number from Grover Brown. When I, when I hear the name Grover Brown, I just think of an 80-year-old man. Yeah. It's, it's not a very useful name anymore. It's kind of like naming oh, – never mind. I don't, I don't know if you have a daughter named like Esther or something, but I just I feel do. like it's <laughs> – please don't. I, uh, I, I also, have, like, a daughter, I also have a daughter named Grover. What? Is, there, is it like a family name or anything like that? I'm Grover the third. That is sick. You need to, you need to put those. I, I went I went to uh, to school um, with somebody who is Arrol the seventh. What? Arrol, what is he, King of England? A L, and it was, it was the seventh. Right. Oh my gosh. Does he? Would he? Would he kill his? Would he kill his wife if she couldn't give him a male heir? Is that too much? Too soon? No? I, I guess not to met you, right? That, that's, a, that's a long chain of that is a very long chain. no creativity. Well, John, we are the host, the 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 former host of the podcast who's doing very well, if anyone's wondering. He's, He's the poor, fourth, right? and his yeah. his son, now that he just had, is the fifth. Whew. Wow. Yeah. That's a pretty that's yeah. That's awesome. Pretty wild, right? You thought you were good with the third, which you are, but now here's the issue. Now you can't spend all your time gallivanting through the ma the mangroves and miss the opportunity to make the fourth. Okay, ah. I don't normally do this sort of societal pressuring because, you know, it's horrible and humans are overrunning the planet. We all know this. We're on the podcast after but when all. You're already the third. Clearly, there's you've an gotta, expectation. You've got to do it. The rest <laughs> of us don't have to. You've got to do it. Well, and your name's cool. It's Grover. Like, well, I appreciate it, but I, I don't know if my boyfriend and I are going to conceive any. Children anytime soon, but uh, oh might, man, it might just end here, which is okay, it's fine. <laughs> Anthony end here too, so I didn't hear you. Me and Anthony both end here. We have two daughters, so we're done. That's true, yeah, we're done. Well, I actually have 1.75 daughters. <laughs> 1.75, she's almost she's cooking still. <laughs> Why can't we have we're no no sons on this podcast. No. I have a dog named yeah. Ollie. There's, there's actually four sons. You should have named your dog Rover. You know what? Should have thought of that. I'm gonna have to get I'm gonna I'm I'm not gonna get over the Grover thing anytime soon. I apologize. I just think it's you have the coolest name ever. I so I have a theory too. I I really get interested about people who have like there he is. There he is. You put a wetsuit on that thing. And we could sell them. I'm just saying, make a million dollars. Like an ankle brace. <laughs> yes, perfect. <laughs> just Grover Brown. It's perfect. No, but I, I have a theory about this that, like, I always talk about like Jordan Gray and like like people who like talented young people who are like charismatic and like it's what turtles need so so much. So like, you are you are it. I, I just I think that's awesome, and that's why I, I was so excited to have you on the show. And I didn't mean to go down this whole 
you know, gone this whole tangent and and um, and everything. But Steve had another photo already queued up to go. Let's go with it, Steve. Let's do it. I had it up there. <laughs> you guys just dawdled too long. Oh, there we go. We could take a quick commercial break. There you go. So, yeah. So, like I was saying, that spotted turtles don't always live in cold places. This one's uh, from Georgia. So Georgia's really cool because we have spotted turtles. But I've also gone out um, with um, Florida Fish and Wildlife Commission and Radio Tracks Florida spotted turtles, which, you know what? I don't really know if I knew that spotted turtles made it all the way to Florida until a few years ago which I think is just remarkable. And so I've actually been collaborating with the Orient Society and Florida Fish and Wildlife um, or Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission, um, looking at the population genetics of spotted turtles at the southern extent of their range. So that is in preparation. Um, but yeah, it's, I think it's really cool that we have spotted turtles in South Georgia. And so cool. Wow. Any difference uh, in them as opposed to like um, other spotted turtles as far as coloration or adult size? Ah, oh, you know what? I wouldn't be able to speak too much of that. So I've only gone out in the field with them a handful of times. So my sample size is pretty small. Um, but uh, I, I'm I'm actually not sure. Okay, I I knew that like you know Florida spotteds are are supposedly smaller. They and look that, smaller. I didn't want to say anything, but they look, I mean, they, they're really small, the ones that I saw. And uh, I've never seen a northern spotted turtle, so I've also got that. I have nothing to compare it to. These right. are the only ones I've ever seen. Oh, man, you need to come up to the Northeast sometime. Bring your wetsuit, though. It gets cold. Oh, I will. Especially because uh, if you want to see I'll, anything cool, it's got to be in the spring. So I'll be there next April. Cool. So yeah, what, what for? The marathon. Oh, um, so that's New York? Uh, Boston. Boston. So sorry. I'll be there mid-April, I think. Which that's, this past April was really yeah, cold. It's always mid-April around yeah. um, oh Memorial Day. No, not Memorial Marathon. The seventeenth of April. Uh, Patriots Day, the third Monday of April. Right. Yeah, we we got to get you out. If you if you don't already have plans, you need to you need to plan. Uh, I would love that. You come stay in my house. We got a princess bed that you can stay in. You'll love it. It's so good. The pink room. Steve awesome. Rosen stayed in that bed when he was here. Um, <laughs> Steve Ender stayed in that bed too, but it was before it was a princess bed. Um, yeah. Well, I'd so love to see some Northeastern turtles. I, I tried this past year and it was just uh, abysmal conditions, but I did get lifer looks at a um, Plymouth red belly and uh, I found some uh, stink pots, which of course made me happy. So yeah. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. I, I prefer like to go fishing with dynamite, not for, not actually fishing with dynamite for all the nature lovers out there. But um, like we had some uh, turtle experts from Germany come and stay um, here. And I think like taking people to Chris's place, Garden State Tortoise, and then maybe going out for like some of the telemetry wood turtle projects or yeah. you know, that sort of thing so that you're, you're sure you're going to see something. Because if you're here for a limited time, instead of just going out and having, no. you know, me lead you through the woods and then feel horrible when we don't find anything because it can be tough sometimes depending upon the weather or just luck sometimes you find a whole bunch and sometimes you don't really find anything i mean um, it, was, it was it was crazy it was mid-april and it was snowing when i got to boston i was i just my brain could not compute like it was just right right yeah. that's from a connecticut oh wow 
I was about to say, that's not my hand. So I was like, whose picture is this? <laughs> uh, I that's know that second digit knuckle hair anywhere. <laughs> that's not my hand. I'm just kidding. I thought it was your hand. <laughs> it's some guy named Mike Van Valen from Waterbury. Wow, Mike. Good job, Mike Van Valen. Yeah. Um, did I get that name right? I think so. He's posting some other really weird stuff, too. Hairless bears. Is this someone who's watching the podcast right now? I don't think so, no. So you're just pulling some random person's photos offline and making Steve post them? You no, know, so great. he asked about northern spotted turtles. So I. Uh... This is the moment when the podcast really fell off the rails. <laughs> you mentioned Since you mentioned hairless bears, uh, there, there's definitely been a mange issue with bears this year. Yes, there has. Yeah. They caught it from Kevin. <laughs> Clearly not. Half less hair if he had mange. He had more hair than that before he got made. <laughs> if you can believe it. Kevin, I love you so much. You don't even Once we're off air, I'll slide this down like an inch and you'll be scared. I you think I'll be scared, I'll I'll be aroused. That was it, it had to be me. I had to take it there. Let's be honest. Who's gonna who's gonna who's gonna completely derail the podcast? Who really? It's either going to be Steve talking about the weather or Anthony talking about something risque, which is why I love that Steve was the first one to go risque tonight. I love it. it really, once once we saw that early, it's kind of, we say like with Sean Marion, used to play for the Phoenix Suns, like he's a really streaky shooter. And if you're playing against them, you almost want him to hit a shot early because then he'll just keep shooting like wild. And once we saw Steve go early to something that was like borderline inappropriate, we should have known that this show was just going to take a turn. <laughs> and that's all right. And we have another picture. Is that you, Grover, with the with the with the shadow with with the uh, yeah, the I got going on there. I like that. Yeah. Wow. I haven't even. I don't even know if I've seen this photo. Did I post this somewhere? You're welcome. <laughs> oh, I told. I didn't. I didn't steal them off Facebook. I stole them off a of Google search. This is a um, oh, okay. A ATP uh, photo. <laughs> Asian you saw yeah, from when you were Asian. This is a long time ago, Grover. Yeah. This was a few years ago. I only use thumbnails, obviously. I'm the worst. I'm the least tech, tech so, savvy Anthony, in the Google image search, there is a button that says other sizes somewhere, I think. <laughs> That's what she said. No, I didn't know. I didn't I didn't I didn't know about that. In I kind of like Listen, I'll, in the future, yeah. I'll take care of all the image work. You tell me what to search for on Google. I know. Listen, I don't complain about my work, fellas. Ready, if you want to do a better job, do a better I, job. I'd love to just right sit now. around and Sip lemonade and let you guys find the photos. That'd be terrific. Just, uh, you know, send me some requests and I'll get it. Let's see. I got the guest. I smell the best. I'm the tallest. I got the photos. All right. I got an idea. Come on. Oh, I already, this is insane. Oh, that photo is really bad. Look how small that is. But this is, this is what I wanted to get to. This to me is the prototypical textbook Grover Brown image, and I freaking love it. This is why, Grover, you need to just live a long life and keep making the world a better place. The, the, the look on your face, man, is priceless. It's like I everything. Think that holding that turtle would make the same face. as long as Grover's thigh. <laughs> I understand. That, that turtle's packing, by the way. I noticed that in the photo. You can't really yeah. see because well, that turtle, that's definitely a boy. So what's really cool about this photo is that, okay, so I'm a Georgia boy, right? And this photo is actually not far from it, was not taken very far from Atlanta. So 
Wow. There's populations of alligator snapping turtles well into the Piedmont of Georgia. So they're not just a coastal plain species. And um, I was out with a friend that day and um, actually we weren't even looking for alligator snapping turtles, believe it or not. Um, my one goal for that day was to see a striped mud turtle. And that was my last turtle species to see in the state of Georgia um, wow. within her provincial borders. And so uh, we, we set out with this goal. And so we met up and um, we're poking around the stream and we knew that there were snappers there. And I looked up the stream and I go, oh my God, I, I, think, I think I see a, a snapping turtle. And so I, I jump in and I run up to it and it ends up, it was actually just a leaf, but it looked like a nose coming out of the water. And so I walked back to the bank and I was just completely dejected. And <laughs> so I look up my friend and I'm about to step up on the bank and I jump up on this log. And I look down, and I go, holy, holy shit. Pardon my French. But um, I was like, that one a snapper, but this is. And I literally, he was wedged under the stump that I stepped on, step up on. So if I hadn't seen that leaf and thought it was a turtle, we would just walk right past it. And so we ended up catching this mammoth male alligator snapping turtle. Um, I mean, look at those alveolars. So this, the, the alveolars are the, the plates right inside the mouth. Yeah. And this stream has an extremely dense population, like washboard mussels. Um, and of course the invasive Asiatic clams, corbicula, and they just go to town. You see scat everywhere. It's just crushed up muscle shells. And it's just, I mean, it, they're basically like a giant sternothrus. So what's not to love? Wow, <laughs> and it was, so cool. it was just incredible. Just incredible. And I'm there's, impressed, I'm there's impressed there's by that photo you got, Anthony. What's that? I'm impressed that you found that photo. Why? Because it's, because it's not a thumbnail? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Be very impressed. Oh, At least you give me credit where it's due. I appreciate yeah. that. Anthony, I found that photo. Oh. Oh, oh and by the way, I did end up finding the striped mud turtle at the end of the day. As the sun was going down, it was my last day in Georgia, and I stumbled upon a striped mud turtle, and I lost. I just lost it. I was so excited. So that's awesome. up. It was, it was just so cool. And that's so great, too. I mean, that's what I mean, too, that, that excitement, like, a lot of people might not be excited about finding a striped mud turtle, but finding it in Georgia where you did and just, you know, being as into biodiversity as you are and turtles as you are, like, that's so cool. I think so many people like in the hobby, on the hobby side of things, sees a striped mud turtle. It's like, oh, yeah, they're nice. I like them. They're cute. You know, I kept them for a while. I don't know. Or, you know, they're, they're kind of seen as like a throwaway species that's just cheap and you know, it's taken from the wild because they're not protected and then just trade it around. Yeah. Um, that's really cool. Thanks. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Now, um, the, the, I, to be honest, I, I'm embarrassed to say I haven't done a ton of extensive reading on the new subspecies, uh, um, or the, the new, uh, taxa for, um, macro Kelly's for, for alligator snapping turtles is which, um, which so, alligator snapping turtle are we talking about there? That one, it's still kind of up in the air. So we know definitively that there are two species at least. Right. So there's the alligator snapping turtle, uh, Taminkii, which occurs from the Mobile West. Um, and then we have Swaniensis, so the Swanee alligator snapping turtle, which occurs in the Swanee River drainage. Uh, that would actually, so they actually described three turtle species in that study, um, the third of which being Apalachicole. And in theory, that's Apalachicole, but that was um, there was a rebuttal to that paper that said that I believe the premise of it was that 
uh, morphologically, they can't be differentiated reliably. Um, and I, I, I'm embarrassed to say I've forgotten what if they if they test the genetics on that one again. Um, but uh, yeah, so they they suggested temporarily sinking Apalachicola until further investigation. Um, but that was from the Apalachicola drainage. That's so interesting to me, though. I mean, there's there seems to be so many species and subspecies that can't be differentiated morphologically. Is that just is this just a new push to sort of make it more um, to make it like more uh, common sense as opposed to just getting crazy with all the splitting that happens because of new genetic test, um, genetic yeah. work? Typically, when you describe a species, you want to at least be able to point out morphological characters uh, that differentiate that species. But I think in the case of Apalachicola, um, I think, and I, I hate to be misspeaking here, but um, I think that some of the uh, museum specimens they were using, uh, it might have been like, I mean, an adult female and a juvenile, and they may not have used enough uh, to account for some of the variation in there. Personally, um, I mean, I, I know people who swear up and down that they're a distinct species. And I will say that if you hand me, if you were to hand me juveniles of what, what um, would be Apalachicola and Tamikii, I could very easily tell you what drainage it came from. So there are some subtle morphological characters. Um, and uh, I'm not sure if anyone's revisiting that right now, but I think it should be. That's pretty cool. The Pepsi challenge. Morphological characteristics. Look at the face. Look at his face. I just love this. This this warms my heart. Hey, I was I uh, so I actually hand caught her. It's so hard to get your hands on the big females because they're so wary, and uh, so it's just like I don't know. It's fun to see the big girls, and so this is a, a Pascagoula map turtle. It's endemic to the Pascagoula River system, uh, and this was uh, she's actually a small adult female. Mm -hmm. But I just think it's they're they got to be one of the prettiest turtles in North America. She's probably just and big enough to be an egg layer. Yeah, probably species. just. And she had um, I mean that mask is actually as blue as it looks. You know, they had this yeah. blue green mask, and the females had this huge head for consuming bivalves. And they're probably one of my favorite turtle species down here. And um, yeah, she was just she was awesome. Gotta love the broad-headed maps, man. Exactly. But you were gonna bring up, uh, I guess, more of a lot of the morphologically conserved species, right? Because I, I feel like you're about to bring up Perlensis as well. Well, I was just saying, like, talk about small morphological differentiation between the two and the split. So, yep. Yep. I mean, it, it can work and you can actually perform a couple morphological measurements and differentiate between the two. So maybe they just didn't get deep enough with, uh, with Apalachicola and they'll come back around with more measurements. Who knows? I'm sure they will. I mean, who doesn't want to work with alligator snapping turtles? So. Right. Anybody who values their fingers. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take an alligator snapping turtle over common though. Any day. Well, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Common at least, so feisty. With the alligator snapping turtles, it's like, if you got bit, you made the mistake for sure. With a comet snapper, sometimes they're just sometimes they're just honorary. Well, all the time they're honorary. But yeah. I blind reached for one the other day, thinking it was like a large female musk, and it quickly let me know it wasn't. Like real quickly, luckily yeah. I didn't get bit, but it was quick. And luckily, it was only four inches. But yeah, so. well, 
I saw I saw a turtle dive under a rock, and I'm like, oh, that's that's a large musk. I just went in to grab it, picked it up. I was instantly just like, whoa. So yeah. <laughs> that wasn't as uh, interesting as I thought. Sorry. I thought it was interesting. It's all right. Uh, we have a couple comments actually. So yes. We have another team member, Kevin, who wanted to say. Uh, actually, I just lost it. Oh. No, I got it. I got it here. He's got it again. Sup, Grover, and hi, hi, Steve. Kevin, if you're still watching, you can say hi, Kevin, too. I'm here also every month. But you have the same name as him, so it would get, con- get confusing. It might get weird, yeah. Kevin then, says uh, hi, Kevin. Then it just sounds like we're t- thinking he said hi to himself. Yeah, then we'd start to, we might have an intervention for him like we're having for you tonight. Yeah. Then uh, and I apologize if I messed his name up. Greg Brashear? Yeah, Greg. Hi. Hey, Greg. And um, I'm probably going to mess this up also. He says everyone needs a Peltifer named Grover. Good idea. Yeah. Is that from Greg? Yeah. yeah. So Greg is who I found that snapper with. I didn't know if he wanted me naming names or throwing it. I don't know. He's a he's a regular viewer of the podcast. Okay. So you he can go Greg. ahead and name drop Greg Brashear. Oh, man. He can find turtles better than me. He's he He's the real deal. He's awesome. So the he problem. was the one who took me to my life for three-stripe mud turtle spot, and he knew they were there. And um, he knew they were there before the state knew they were there because there were no records from that county. That's so true. we actually got a county record publication out of that one. To me, that's just the coolest thing. Like, there needs to be – like, the way there's, like, Stolen World and Lizard King, like, written about the reptile smugglers of, of yesterday, like, like the, the – like, discovering species in different areas or just finding new species. Like, I think that is the most interesting thing. And a lot of people don't necessarily, unless it's new, like everyone got excited when, when the new intermediates came out, um, you know, the new must turtle, the paper that described the new must turtle that, you know, was thought to be like integrates uh, of um, minor and Peltzer. Yeah. Minor. But thank you. Um, so like, like that's exciting because it's now, but like this stuff has been happening for years and years and, and like the story is really cool. And it's it's usually told in a very uh, sciency way that that reads like stereo instructions and that like the the you know public maybe isn't always digesting if that makes sense. Grover, what do you know about? Uh, and I'm gonna mess this up too. Vokti, uh, Vodi, Bodai, Bodai. Uh, that's what I call it. The new the new uh, kind of sterner from Puerto Vallarta. Yeah, so you've heard of it. I have. Um, yeah, I, I read that paper, and um, I, I kind of want to plan a trip to Puerto Vallarta now. <laughs> I would love to see that. Um, it's a cool-looking turtle. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like a micro-endemic, and it sounds like they've yeah. only hands on a, on a few of them. Um, and it's one, I think it's the smallest kind of sternin. Um, yeah. I think it's the smallest in the genus, and I think that's pretty cool. I... Um, I'd seen photos, I guess, from uh, captive um, individuals, maybe in Europe. Yeah. And I was thinking, wow, that's a weird-looking turtle. Why have I never heard of it? And then, of course, you know, that species description came out somewhat recently. Yeah. And I was like, oh, okay. It's one of those things that the, the hobbyists knew before the sciences, really, it sounded like. Um, that happens. It sounds like, I don't know, I got the idea from Dick that – They've tried to keep it under wraps for several years so that okay. the population didn't get hammered before they okay. were able to set up some stuff. That's a good um, call. That's a good move. Yeah. Um, so 
you know, and, you know, I think for some of it, some of this stuff is just having the tools that we didn't have. So like people may have recognized this 10, 20 years ago, but we didn't have some of the tools we have now to really say, this is definitely different. Oh, absolutely. Um, Because, you know, the, so and now the analysis thing that we can do is, has come a long way, especially when you look at the genetic piece of it. Oh yeah, genetic genetic analyses have come so far, even in the past decade. And right, you no, know, that's all really computationally. Um, um, I want to say expensive. I mean, it takes a lot of computational power to analyze those genetic data. And right, so a lot of variables. Yeah, and but now now we have both of it. You know, we have these really sophisticated genetic techniques, and we have really sophisticated genetic analyses. So that's why you're seeing, and some of these morphologically conserved species, we're saying actually um, there are differences in morphology, and there are molecular differences or deep molecular differences. And so you got things like Bodai coming out, and Intermedius, and the new Achilles, and Perlensis, and uh, a number of examples. So cool! It is. Oh, it's so cool. How new is Perlensis? Twenty ten, I believe. Yeah, but who's keeping track? Yeah, and the, you know the same people who split Perlensis did one the other way, and they were the ones that put the two uh, Nigronota subspecies back together. Oh, were they? Yeah, the three or four years ago now. Okay. So it's just Nigronota, no, no subspecies. No, no Delta Cola. Correct. Um, well, considered a um, clinal variation. Yeah. And you see it though, you see it in Flava Maculata as well. And I, I, I haven't been really in the bayous of Louisiana to see it in Oculifera. And I imagine, you know what I'd love to do? <laughs> These are things that I'd all like to do at some point in my life, but to kind of observe some of those more clinal variations. So I, I have worked with yellow blotch sawbacks. Right. And I have worked with them uh, close to the Mississippi coast. And it is cool. I mean, they balloon up. Like I was catching them up in the headwaters, but I was also catching them down um, in the lower Pascagoula. And they just turn these big, bulbous, awesome map turtles. And I hear it happens in Oculifera, but I would love to go down to like the bayous of Louisiana, like south of New Orleans or something, and see some Wachitensis. I, I want to know if Wachitensis just turn into these mammoth beings, because I think that's an area where no one's really gone to survey. I think that'd be super cool. And they actually go to Bates, so you could probably set up some traps. Um, so I, I'd, li- I'd like to observe some more of that, some more of that clinal variation. Uh, morphological variation to me is just really interesting. So I, I enjoy finding new populations of the same species and just seeing some of the small differences from. Right. Well, and, you know, the, I, for our viewers who don't necessarily understand what clinal variation is, by the way, it's <clears throat> this gradual change that you can follow all the way down uh, a drainage system, for example. So instead of having like defined lines where you go, okay, up here, they're shaped one way, up here, down here, they're shaped a different way. It's just this slow shift. And so there is no way to actually physically demarcate any difference. It's just, and the the genetics are are almost identical. It's just appearance, slight appearance differences as you go. And it's primarily due to environmental factors too. So down there, it's it's big, slow moving water. And in big, slow moving water, you have a lot more big, fast moving alligators. And yeah. so some people think it's an adaptive strategy to, you know, if you're, if you're rounder and larger, it's going to be harder to crush you. Right. So um, they, they think that might have something to do with it too. Plus you got a longer growing season. It's a more productive system and right. that could also lead or feed into it. Although, you know, the, the irony of that longer growing season thing, 
then you think about how big false map turtles and northern map turtles are up in the Great Lakes. Yeah. Right? They get they they grow slower, but they end up getting bigger than they do in far in southern far in southern more areas of their range. Wow. But that happens with a lot of species like the spotted turtle. What is that called? So and so's rule? Oh. I always forget the name of this. It's so that like a species like animals further north will, will be larger in size. I know what you're talking about. I forgot. Of the same species. Dang. But you have a you bring up a good argument for that on why with some of those species it would be it would be the opposite. But I want to ask a question. So um, you talk about like wanting to get over to the bayou. You you're in you know Mississippi mud and and northern Georgia and all that type of stuff. You've also spent time in Vietnam. Can you talk about like the differences? So like, there it is. By the way, the Bergman's rule. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah, Bergman's rule. Wow. You beat me to it. I was googling. I knew there was a rule, and I won't remember the name Bergman's again. So in like three months from now, when we're doing, you know, the third podcast from now, I'll be talking about, oh, what's the name of that rule again? Um, but so you've, you've been in, in, you know, kind of the uh, – it kind of reminds me of, of like Jesse the Body Ventura in Predator, where he's got like experience in the, you know, in, in the muck in America. And then in that in – that, in that movie, all right, it's really not a good example because he goes, they're in like South America. Um, but anyway, so you're experiencing jungles in different areas. So can you talk about the differences, difference in the bugs, the mosquitoes that you're dealing with, differences in the, the muck that you're trying to walk through, and differences in like how easy it is to catch turtles? Oh, my God. Yeah, so... After I graduated, I went to the University of Georgia and got a degree in ecology, and I decided to take a little time between uh, undergraduate and graduate school. So what better way to spend my time than to go to ground zero, basically in turtle conservation, so to Southeast Asia. And so that was an interesting conversation I had with my family where I told them, you know, I was 22. When I think back, I was like, man, I was so young. Uh, I was 22 and decided to move to Vietnam and work for the Asian Turtle Program. And... You know, you hear all about the Asian turtle crisis. And I'm like, I'm pretty good at catching turtles. I think I can catch the turtles. Um, yeah, no, that was just me being an arrogant 22-year-old. But <laughs> you get there, and um, I mean, you can't get more different from southeastern United States and southeastern Asia. It's um, uh, it's just a completely different culture. It's a different world, um, and it's so founded in uh, tradition. So it's traditional to eat turtles, and this has been this rapid um. I guess population growth down there and economic growth that has facilitated them uh, to catch more turtles. It went from, you know, opportunistically eating turtles to whole exploitation of turtle species to satiate these uh, Asian, primarily Chinese markets for turtles that are thought to have these traditional uh, or it's a tr traditional medicinal value. And so the species I was working with was um, the Vietnamese pond turtle, Marmies animensis, which is, um, popular in the pet trade, does really well in the pet trade, thank goodness, because in Vietnam, they're a, uh, a localized endemic, and they used to be so common that they would wander from people's rice fields into the huts that they lived in, and now, I mean, I trapped for a year, and we couldn't, we never caught one. There was a villager who literally tripped over one next to a trap that we had set. Um, I mean, the trap wasn't there at that time, but we'd put a trap in that location. He tripped over it in the middle of the night. 
Uh, and unfortunately, it's it's hard to convince a villager uh, who you know makes very little money. Uh, it's hard to convince them not to sell this turtle to a turtle trader for several thousand dollars, which is more money than they'd probably see in the rest of their lifetime. So conservation over there is extremely difficult, and the turtles there are doing as poorly as you hear. It is, it is really, I'll, I'll even, I'll, I'd say it's depressing because for me, I have to have turtles. <laughs> like I, I need them, and I need to see them. And you kind of take for granted um, even sliders and cooters on a log in a pond, you know. Um, I used to just glance out on me like I was just some sliders and cooters. But when you go over to Vietnam and you, you're passing very similar systems, you're asking how they differ. There's a lot of really similar systems. There's still ponds, there's still streams, there's still um, mountain streams and stuff like that. Um, but you pass those ponds, you don't see anything. Um, you don't see turtles basking on logs, uh, no matter how far out in the country you get. And we did a lot of surveys with the local people. And they'd be like, oh, yeah, those turtles used to be really abundant here. We'd, we'd trade them for a pack of cigarettes. And now they haven't seen them in 10 years because they harvest them all. Uh, unfortunately, the geomitids, which is the family of Southeast Asian pond, and, uh, pond turtles and box turtles, um, are not like our mitids here in the Southeast, which are pond and box turtles, in that they have markedly less fecundity. They produce fewer eggs. And you see the photos on social media that the eggs they lay are huge. So they'll lay like one or two eggs. They may lay several clutches. But when you couple this exploitation with this low fecundity and, of course, the delayed sexual maturity of these turtles, it has just been a recipe for disaster. So Southeast Asia taught me a lot about um, uh, conservation here in the Southeast. And uh, one of the I learned many lessons, but certainly working to keep common species common is really important. Don't let it get to the point of no return. Um, two... As much as I loved working in Vietnam, as much of a great experience as it was, I don't think I could go back there and work. Um, the way that you're going to make conservation work in an area like Vietnam in a developing country is educating the next generation. Mm -hmm. So we did a lot of educational programs. We offered uh, workshops for students to work with turtles. And I saw them getting motivated and interested. And they're starting to kind of think for themselves. Um, they're kind of starting to look past some of those uh, they're not looking at these animals as traditional medicine anymore. They're seeing them as an organism that's threatened um, or whose very existence is threatened. And I, I was there for a year and the amount of Vietnamese I speak is ridiculously little. It, the language barrier was so real. It made it really difficult for me to feel like I was making an impact because my colleagues who were Vietnamese, they could sit down and in 10 minutes do more good for a species or a community than I could in a year. And it's not just to be like, oh, maybe if I learned Vietnamese, I could do more. But learning Vietnamese would take probably the rest of my life is incredibly complex. Um, so it, it kind of made me realize that I wanted to come back to the US and pursue my graduate degree here as opposed to somewhere else, uh, working to safeguard our species. Because I mean, they're near and dear to my heart. And, and you know, the Southeast uh, United States was formally, I say formally, because I'm pretty sure formally second in diversity in the world to Southeast Asia. But with the description of new species, I'd say we're probably number one now. And then I'd further that statement by saying that our abundance of turtles, the sheer number of turtles that we have, uh, even our endangered species, is unparalleled, I think, anywhere else on the planet. I don't think anywhere else on the planet you'll find more species and more individuals of those species. And that is something I want to spend my life protecting. So that's, that's why I do what I do and why I want to keep doing what I do. And that's, I mean... 
I want to be a turtle conservationist. I'm, I'm working on that right now in the third year of my PhD. And these are, this is what I want to do and how I want to apply myself in the future. So, yeah. I love you. I love you. <laughs> Thanks. I do. I do. I'm sorry to speak. Sorry to speak. I, love, I, love, I love you. I love you. I don't know what else to say. Else to say. You, too bad you don't have a microphone. You should drop it and walk off right now. But so the Jesse the Body line I was thinking about from Predator is this place makes um, Cambodia look like Kansas. And that's what I'm wondering. It's like, is is it different? Just the feel of being out there in the field. Is it different than being in the United States? And why? Uh, so <laughs> it is a little different. So like I said, the systems are kind of the same. Uh, you asked about mosquitoes and other body insects. They're fine. I did get dengue fever and was hospitalized for about a week. I didn't tell my family because I was kind what of What even is that? What is that? Uh, it's, it's related to malaria. It was awful. It was just what? terrible. I never actually thought I was going to die from, you know, so obviously we're all going to die. Sorry to get grim here. But I never thought that like, I would feel like death um, until I got dengue fever. It was awful. I got it from mosquitoes somewhere. But the worst part about Vietnam was uh, the leeches. They're insane. They have such a scent for human. Um, so hold on. Let's see if I'm flexible enough. I wear chacos because I love them. And uh, <laughs> I wear them in the field everywhere I go. I've stepped on cotton mouths, which I probably shouldn't admit. Um, thankfully, cotton mouths aren't aggressive. But I, I realize the inherent risk of wearing chacos. But when I was wearing them in Southeast Asia, the leeches, I have really long toes. My friends make fun of me a lot. Um, I won't hold my foot up again, <laughs> but what would happen is these leeches would get under my toes and I would get all the way back to like, um, our hotel or where we were staying for, uh, our, our stint in the field. And I'd take my shoes off and I'd have like two or three leeches like this big curled up under my toes. I had, I just didn't even feel. And so I think it's like my very first Instagram post ever is a photo of a leech bite under my foot. And, um, they bleed like the devil. They bleed for days. I would have a choco full of blood. So, uh, that was different. That was unexpected. I started wearing socks with my chacos. Um, it's obviously I'm not going to wear, not wear my chacos. Uh, and that, that cut back on it a little bit. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Do you feel like you fit in more in Vietnam wearing chacos with socks or less? I didn't fit in in Vietnam, period. I'm about a foot and a half taller than everyone. And I'm also, uh, I mean, I'm light skinned and everyone noticed. Everyone. <laughs> I, I, I felt so I can definitely mark off like uh, off my bucket list, you know, like celebrity status. Because that's what I felt like in Vietnam. People would come up to me in the grocery store. But like, can, can we take a picture with you? And I'm like, I guess so. And I mean, so, you're out in the country, right? So it's just like if you're going to find turtles anywhere, you're going to be out in the country. So yeah. people just oh, yeah, don't. No. I was in a really small city. I was like the only white guy in town. And um, yeah, people noticed me, I guess you could say. That's amazing. Wow. What a cool experience. It was. It was so much fun. I really missed the food, too. I don't want to go back. One of these days. So yeah, that, that photo you sent earlier or showed earlier was um, we were excavating a elongated tortoise nest uh, at the Tuk, or, uh, Cook Fung um, Turtle Conservancy Center. And uh, they, they've taken a lot of confiscations. They've taken a lot of confiscated uh, elongated tortoises, which reproduce really well uh, at the conditions at that national park at Cook Fung. And um, so they incubated several every year and... Among the other species, they had um, 
They had the, uh, shoot, I don't even know the common names, um, but Cybenorachiella crassicolis, which is, I guess, the black marsh turtle. Black marsh, yep. Yeah, and they had uh, Vietnamese pond turtles, Chinese uh, striped necked, or the sinensis. Yeah. The gold, golden thread. Oh, and they had uh, the, they had heosemis that were just, I, I, it was just amazing. They're huge. They are just these huge, wonderful, lovable turtles that just apparently live in the marshes of southern Vietnam. And they were just, Anthony, grab rocks yeah. That's one of many leech bites. You can see blood on the background too. That hotel had like a, the lights in the room were green for whatever reason. But yeah, sorry, my, you can see my long toes. <laughs> He's talking about his Heosemi's grandest though, the uh, larger, grandest the larger species. And Anadolii. Oh, cool. That's really cool. They're so cool. And while I was over there, I did get to see Raphidus before it passed away, the one from Hanoi. Wow. So the giant Mamsi softshell turtle, it was at that point one of four known left on the planet. Then we got down to three. But now the Asian Turtle Program, who's doing just incredible work, uh, use a technique called eDNA where you can filter water and look at little fragments of DNA and use uh, genetic barcoding. And they verified the presence of a fourth individual in another very large reservoir up there. Uh, and you would think that these massive turtles would be easy to spot, and they, they are not, because they can hold their breath almost in perpetuity, and the reservoirs are just enormous. So to be in the right spot coming, time, um, to see one They're not coming out of water. They're not, they're not basking, and they're not... And On occasion, they'll bask. Um, yeah. But... Uh, I don't think that often. Maybe maybe as it's starting to warm up in the spring, they might come out the bass. But I think after that, they don't. They don't so really I didn't know. realize that. I thought I thought that one was seen, but that that makes sense though, because I was gonna I was gonna say they found a fourth one. What are they doing? So they they know it's there. So now they're gonna spend more time looking. I think that's absolutely fascinating. I I went to a presentation um, where they were doing this in in um, Pennsylvania for Hellbenders, I believe, if my memory serves me right. That is just the most amazing thing. Yeah. You're like, it's kind of like, what is it from Star Trek? The tricorder, where it's yeah. like in an area and know what's there. But yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. eDNA is so cool. It's like it, Ghostbusters, like something yeah, Egon would use. Unbelievable! Wow, that's so cool. Yeah. So, what is what's your favorite? What what's your favorite species to? to track or and or find or work with in the wild? That's kind of a loaded question. I don't know if I have a favorite species per se. I think I have favorite things about each species. Mm -hmm. And so here in South Mississippi, I think there's 14 turtle species in my county. I think mm -hmm. I've counted, I think that's right. And there's 31 species in the state. I've seen all but one. Um, and what I like most about turtles is just, it's, it's fun to go out and look for them to kind of pinpoint their microhabitat because they take you to some beautiful places, places you would never go to ordinarily. And so I love wading around like Tupelo Cypress swamps with this, you know, black tan and water looking for mud turtles or, or um, down here, striped neck musk turtles are in these beautiful, clear gravelly streams that look like they're straight from Appalachia. It's definitely not what I expected in South Mississippi, or you can be out on a huge river, um, with map turtles and um, alligator snapping turtles and razorback musk turtles. It's just, I like the habitats they take you to. And so I just like being outside and I'm definitely more of an aquatic turtle guy. So I have seen some gopher tortoises here. We're kind of um, at the westernmost extent of the range and they, they aren't very abundant. They're fairly protected actually uh, in this area. Um, 
And their habitat is kind of scrubby. It's hard to get around and in Chacos. So I kind of stick to the aquatic environments. That's really but, cool. Yeah, but I guess if I had to pick one favorite, shoot, I don't even know. I like stream systems. So basically any, any turtle I could find in a stream here, I really enjoy looking for. It's what I do in my spare time. And uh, it's just fun. Have you do spotted so Piliata? Sorry. What's that? Have you caught any Mississippi, Mississippi Diamondback Terrapins, Piliata? No, how else I have one species left to see? That one? That's the one. So I've seen, I've seen hatchling, or I've seen, I've found a nest. Um, I've made it a point this summer to go down, and um, uh, I've coordinated with one of the, um, she works for Marine Department, or Mississippi Marine Department of Resources, or Department of Marine Resources. Uh, but she does terrapin walks, and she marks nests on a particular beach, and I keep meaning to get down. I've got so much work going on here, it's hard for me to get down, but um, I want to go down and see a nesting female. It's kind of one of the few ways you can see them down here. Uh, that being said, it's also cool that area we have the Alabama red belly turtle. So Sudamese so alabamensis. And yeah, it's it's cool to get, you know, that's another narrow ranging endemic. And mm -hmm. a lot of people don't know it occurs in Mississippi because it's called the Alabama red belly turtle. Right. And they're found not far from terrapin. So I've seen them, but I just haven't seen terrapin, but it's kind of crazy because you would think it'd be the other way around. Mm -hmm. Do you have um, so so? Can you? We didn't ask you yet. What your what your thesis is on? What are you working on right now? Uh, what can we look out from for from you in, in the future? Okay, so uh, if you haven't picked up on already, I really like musk turtles and mud turtles. So my dissertation work is kind of funny. I started as a master's student here, and I really wanted to work with map turtles. And um, the project proved to be a little logistically difficult. We didn't have the funding, and um, I had a side project going on, and one of my committee members is like, "Be careful, side projects. They may become your, uh, you know, they might be a degree." And I was like, "Huh, no way. I'm, you know, Matt Trolls through and through." But uh, turns out this side project, I was able to get some funding for it, and um, it's become the focus of my dissertation. So I actually switched from a master's uh, program here to a PhD program here because I uh, was really fortunate and secured a fellowship, and so that was three years of funding, which is awesome as a graduate student. <laughs> And what I investigate are the interactions of the stream-dwelling musk turtles. So we know, um, and they're pretty common in trays, razorback musk turtles and strike-neck musk turtles um, are both riverine denotherous. And what's interesting to me, what was interesting when I moved down here, I didn't know that stripe-necks made it here. I didn't think that they were present in the past school of drainage. Um, and to have a stream-dwelling Oh, and they are, spoiler alert, they are here in abundance. But to have two stream-dwelling stenothers doing the same thing, it's kind of, it's interesting to me because if you think of the theory of competitive exclusion where you have two organisms that are closely related, sharing similar resources, you, there's inherently a superior competitor. One of them should win out. You, you shouldn't get both. And I was curious how they're, what, what differences they have. Because if you look at each species allopatric to one another, so just outside the native range uh, of the other species, which I should, I, sorry, let me backtrack one second here. So this is the westernmost extent of the striped neck mustrels range. And it's also the easternmost extent of the razorback mustrels range. So it's, this is the only area they co-occur. It's a very narrow range of overlap. So I guess that was what was really interesting to me. 
And outside of uh, this shared range, they are in all lodic habitats. Lodic just meaning stream or riverine. You can find them in really small headwater streams, but striped neck mustrels get all the way to the Alabama River in South Alabama. And similarly, razorback mustrels can be found in the highlands, of, uh, in the Wachita Highlands, in really small, cobbly, bouldery streams, uh, like in southeastern Oklahoma. But you can also get them in the bayous down here in South Mississippi and Louisiana. So when they're together, though, they do seem to separate out in habitat, where you do get striped neck mustrels in really small, clear gravelly streams, like I was talking about. But also you get, and you get razorbacks in the large rivers. But I put out traps before, and I've gotten both species in the same trap. So they're also syntopic in areas, meaning they they're, they co-occur. And that brings up all kinds of really interesting questions of ecology. Um, I use uh, genetic markers as well to, one, um, see if they're maintaining reproductive isolation. So are they hybridizing? What happens when they come in contact with one another? And so that's kind of what I'm working on right this very instant. I've also done work in the past with Razorbacks and their population structure across their range because they occur all the way from the Pascagoula system in southeastern uh, Mississippi to the Brazos River in Texas. And when you look at the map turtles along that continuum, you have turnover of many, many, many different species. And um, Razorback mustrels, believe it or not, according to a review of the literature that came out just a few years ago, are one of the top 10 least studied turtle species in North America, or in the US and Canada, I'll say, uh, which is bizarre, because they do have a very, fairly large geographic range. Um, and like some of the other turtles we were talking about earlier, they are morphologically conserved. A lot of people, one, don't even look at a musk turtle, um, <laughs> because they aren't you know, ornately patterned like the map turtles, or they aren't behemoths like the alligator snapping turtles. Um, but they share very similar ecologies, right? They're highly, highly aquatic. Uh, there's very, I don't think there's any published record of a Razorback mustard or crossing a road unless the area was flooded. So they, they, they're very highly aquatic. They don't move far from the water's edge, even the nest. So I was interested in the population structure um, and the intermittent rivers between here and you know central Texas to see if, you know, potentially there could be a, a species endemic to one of those drainages somewhere in there. And there are a species right now that's really popular in Southeast Asia. Um, so we are exporting large numbers of them. And, you know, what if we're exporting large numbers from another micro endemic? What if it's like the Pascal Matural only found the Pascal drainage and we're shipping them all to China and we aren't aware that, you know, they're their own distinct lineage. So, I mean, there's conservation implications there, even though it's a common species. We just don't know. Well, that's, that's, that's kind of what I'm working on. I think they're really cool. I, I just it's, really enjoy working with musturals. And thankfully, working with common species is a lot easier than working with really rare species because there's fewer permits and hoops to jump through. And they actually go to traps so you can catch decent numbers of them. So it's been a pleasure <laughs> compared so cool. to some of the other turtles I've worked with. And that's such a great point, too, about you know what's being going on. You, you, you bring up the, the map turtle species. Like if we're just sending them over and we're catching them in one place because it's easy, and that could be that one drainage that holds that one species, the only spot, and we're just calling them all map turtles or calling them all musk turtles when they could be yeah. different from everybody else. That's amazing. And even uh, if they are the same species, there's, there's still applications because, um, I mean, a lot of states have turtle regulatory laws. So the, some states have just put a moratorium on tur collecting turtles and exporting them. And say you did get a large confiscation of razorback musk turtles or striped neck musk turtles, and you want to know, you know, if they were exported from Louisiana, you want to know if they're actually Louisiana turtles, um, not just turtles that were caught in Texas and brought to Louisiana to be exported. 
And so you can use those genetic markers too to place uh, what state they're from. And you can look at those uh, turtle laws, and, you know, you can actually use it uh, in confiscations to say, hey, actually, you know, they may have said they caught these in Louisiana, but these are Texas turtles, or these are Oklahoma turtles. Um, and the laws there prohibit the collection of the species or prohibit the take of this many of the species. So there's still very real applications to conservation there. And it, and it took me a while, I'm sorry, I'm droning on and on, but you know, I wanted, to, I wanted to work in turtle conservation and I joined a genetics lab and I'm not necessarily a geneticist by trade. And um, you know, I, I, I just wanted, I wanted to figure out a way to work in conservation, but conservation is such a nebulous term, I didn't realize that it's a tool belt. You know, if you can use genetic markers to con conserve a species, then that's, you're, you're still a tour conservationist. So it kind of, that was a realization for me is, you know, there's so many different tools that you can put in your belt in turtle conservation. So I'm trying to get as many skills as I can with, with genetic work and modeling work and GIS work like we were talking about. Um, so uh, as that, I don't know, maybe I can do a better job one day. <laughs> I want to ask you one one more question, as you know, to a, a young, charismatic, intelligent uh, uh, ambassador for turtles. I might be like two of those things. You are. You, you <laughs> you're all of those things. You're all those things. You're at least two. I know for sure. But a lot of our viewers are um, a lot of our viewers are turtle enth enthusiasts, and the vast majority of, of those who are, are just enthusiasts and aren't biologists or or, or, or um, you know actually doing this work. Um, out in the field, they're they're doing it with like captive assurance colonies and stuff like that. You see all of the tubs behind me and everything. And I think sometimes um, there ends up being this like um, segregation between like the people who are doing captive stuff, the people who the the zoos, and then the the researchers and and all that type of stuff. I I wonder, uh, in your opinion, as like a, a newer up and comer, and you have tons of experience um, already, but what your view is of that segregation and what your thoughts are around that. Um, I personally think, and I don't mean to just give you my thoughts and then for me to go on a rant here, I apologize, but I personally think that um, it's a shame when people aren't communicating. And I wonder if people in like academia share that same sentiment and what your thoughts are on that. Okay. I think, I mean, I think I'm in a similar boat to you. I, I do think, I mean, I don't, I don't keep many turtles, but I always, I've always kept turtles. So I might not necessarily be a hobbyist in the regards I've kept um, and breed a lot of turtles, but, um, but I do see the utility in it. And that's one great thing about like the Turtle Survival Alliance has a conference every year and it brings together um, hobbyists and researchers and organizations and it's this awesome community and I realized, I mean, I try to talk to as many people as I can there because, I mean, how, when else do you get to talk about turtles 24 hours a day? Um, literally. Literally. 24 hours a day. day. <laughs> so it, it's I've, one thing I have learned is that, I mean, like, hobbyists are an incredible resource. And I don't know, you know, I'm still kind of new to the field. I don't know how much input they have into some of the research that we're doing. But certainly with captive assurance colonies, that's one really important facet um, of the hobbyists. But two, hobbyists feel they, they get a feel for their for for their captive animals. You know, like you're always striving to make the environment as natural as you can for them. You learn things about their habits that 
um, would be really hard to observe in the wild. You know what food they should have, and um, uh, importantly too, how to incubate the friggin' eggs. Because not all turtles are the same. You can't just pop them in at 28 degrees Celsius and expect them to hatch. Some things need diapause. Some things need more humidity. Um, you know, some turtle eggs need to be dropped in the water to hatch. And I think that there's such a wealth of knowledge in the hobbyist community for, for stuff of, in that regard um, for turtles all over the world that, um, yeah, it's just, like I said, it's, it's a wealth of um, it's a wealth of knowledge. And I think that we, it'd be great to see more hobbyists and researchers working together, especially in the field of conservation, which I know I just said was really broad, but for things that are critically endangered, I think we do need to be networking a bit more um, with uh, our captive insurance colonies and I guess stud books. And um, again, I'm not a hobbyist. So I don't know about the lending of animals and this, that, and the other, but certainly tricks of the trade that you guys have picked up on for maintaining healthy, happy animals that reproduce. I think that's really important. And it's something that like someone like myself doesn't know anything about uh, just because I haven't kept these turtles for years. I might be able to go out and catch them um, or, you know, model something weird about their habitat, but I can tell you some of the things that you know about the turtles just from observation. Cause I, you know, some of it, some of it is kind of uh, conceptual for me where, you know, I look at the turtle in the big picture, whereas you have the turtle uh, under a, a microscope, essentially. And so you're learning things about its ecology that I would never be able to touch on. So I think that's, I think we're getting there. I think conferences like TSA are doing a good job of bringing people like that together. And so I think that, I don't know, those will go hand in hand in the future. And I think there'll be, a, you know, more collaboration, just like, the turtle room now with NAPTURG, the North American Freshwater Turtle Research Group. You know, you've got a wood turtle site up in Pennsylvania, right? And you, you're, you're bridging that gap. You guys are awesome because y'all are, you know, putting on a podcast and reaching out to the biologists and to the hobbyists and to, um, you know, putting this out on social media, which is, you know, so increasingly important this day and age uh, that I think we're getting there. I, I like to think we are. I'm kind of a delusional optimist at times, though. So <laughs> nothing wrong with that, brother. That's nothing great. Don't that. lose it. Yeah, don't lose so, it. There's so much in, that makes you, you know, pessimistic. That can make you pessimistic. That's in the right. World. Don't become a realist, Grover. <laughs> <laughs> forward, man. Right. So, right. This leads us at a good spot here to cut off tonight. Um, we are 40 days away from the TSA conference, maybe 41, somewhere around there. So. If you can make it to Fort Worth from August 12th through 15th, sign up and come hang out and visit me and Grover because he and I will both be there, I believe. Absolutely. And, um, you know, come grab a drink, come grab a meal, talk turtle, whatever. And, like, when we met, when we said 24 hours a day, you will literally stay up pretty much all night talking turtle for, like, three-plus days. It's fantastic. It's amazing. It's lots of great people. Um rub elbows with some of the nicest turtle conservationists who you've like previously been like, Oh, but then you realize that like, they're just a normal Joe and they like hanging out with you too. So um, if you haven't been yet, Grover and I highly encourage you getting out to one of these conferences. It'll change your perspective on just how important I think all the different facets are. Kevin, you shouldn't go and grab a drink. Huh? You should not go there and grab a drink. You should no. go for the turtles, okay? I'm clearly an alcoholic, so this is a problem. Uh, well, that's, that's why we got together tonight. 
Yeah. Don't worry, Kevin. Sangrias are not the drink of choice at the TSA conference. Yeah. <laughs> and I have to tell you, it's we've been on this for an hour and a half, and I have went through half a glass. So, well, it's, it hasn't been in front of the camera, so I don't know if Amanda's filling you up. Amanda's at work. Well, who knows? Who knows who the heck he got over there then? Veda's filling it up for me. Veda's his daughter, ladies and gentlemen. She is uh, sleeping. Ah, hear that? Cool. I can see that. Tell her thanks tomorrow for for letting you get on the podcast as we were starting. You got it. You don't have to join late. That's pretty Still cool. Understand every word of it, so that's good. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you guys so much, Grover. Thank you. You you are honestly an inspiration, and you're just starting to scratch the surface. The amazing things you're going to do, and it was, it was we're yeah, we're going to be there one day saying, "Man, we remember we used to know that guy." Not April. April. He's going to come down. We're going to look at Yes. Stuff. Listen, I will lose 30 pounds and try to – how do you get into a marathon? Well – Do you have to have a time? You pay the fee to sign up. You do? Can you, could, could, I, could I just be like, listen, I'm 300 pounds and I can run a marathon. Let me in. Yeah. Well, unfortunately for the Boston, you had to hit a qualifying standard. See? So I can't. Right. But well, there are lots of other ones around where you could just yeah, go exactly. sign up yeah. and get in. So – but you're all have to go easy on me because I'm probably gonna be hobbling for like three days after because that's just kind of standard for the marathon. You I heard. don't mean to be rude, but I think I could probably carry you. <laughs> we could do that. We'll take a I whole video. Look. I have bigger. He's a little scrawny. He's kind of light. I could probably carry two of you guys. Just saying. I'm not strong. I'm just big. Well, but yeah, next April. I'm looking forward to it, and that should be a lot of fun. Awesome. It's pending good weather. Weather this year sucked. Just it you was, have an open invitation. No, he wasn't it this year, Grover. Yeah, it was. The, it was the worst race conditions in like recent history. It was just abysmal. I think the women's time was like thirty minutes slower than average, which is just wow. it's that it just that doesn't happen. So it was like thirty mile an hour winds with torrential rain for twenty six point yeah. two miles. It was wow. It was awful. April was a weird month in the Northeast. Yeah, it is. Very hit or miss. Welcome to Thunderdome. Sorry. We can take him to that uh that spot. I don't know what you're talking about, but yes. Uh, the cranberry spot. We could. Yeah. I haven't seen much there. Yeah, but let's we, get in the water this time. We could do that. I would take I We'll talk about this later. I would take him to places like I said where you're fishing with dynamite a little bit where yeah. he, you know, he's never seen a wood turtle. I don't think I you mind if I we. Think, I think the wood turtle is my last turtle species to see east of the Mississippi. That's crazy. So I, I mean, think it's my last one. Th then you know you go somewhere where they're on on you know it's a telemetry project so they we were sure the that we that, that was so common. Right? Gorgeous Grover, bright oranges. Wouldn't it? Honestly, not so bad. Sometimes I think you like turtles more than a friend, Steve. This is also an intervention for you. <laughs> we have to end this podcast. I'm encouraging Grover to come visit our wood turtles. <laughs> I would love to. You would love them. They're sexy. Up to you. Yeah, well, are. ladies and Very gentlemen, sexy. we Very should sexy sign off. Turtles. So, um, you know the big guy. You know the other bald guy. <laughs> Grover with the hat in the middle. <laughs> I'm Steve. Thanks for joining us. We'll catch you again in a month. Adios. Hey guys.